Second Timothy. Chapter three, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned, you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. This is God's word. Thank you. Thank you, David. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, your word given to us, breathed out by you and, and, and captured in written form so that we would have it to be able to, to learn of you. And, and thank you for providing for us in your, in your scriptures everything we need to know, to know you uh, and to uh, love you and to obey you. And, and I pray this morning, Lord, that you would uh, bless uh, the reading of your word. I pray you would... Um, filter out uh, anything that I would say that would detract from the purity of your word. And I pray above all, Lord, that uh, when, when we're done here this morning, that no one's name will even be remembered except the name that is above all names, the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that all things today, Father, would be for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, uh, what a joy and a privilege and an honor it is to address you this morning from the Word of God. And before I begin, if I could just uh, uh, take a moment of personal privilege and just say what a delight it is to have all three of my daughters here, Leah, uh, Leah and her husband Jake and Julia and Sarah, y'all do something like this. It's just as much fun to embarrass you now as when you were in middle school. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Pastor Mark uh, asked me a couple of weeks ago uh, at the elders retreat, he said, uh, well, are you nervous about preaching uh, your first time? And I said, nervous? Am I nervous? Well, of course I'm nervous. Have you never been on a first date? Um, do you not remember what it's like to be on a first date? Of course I'm nervous. But uh, I have to say this morning as I was preparing that just this wave of joy came over me. And uh, though I am nervous, I also am, am really rejoicing at this opportunity to get to, to speak to you from the Word this morning. Um, so uh, last week, uh, Pastor Mark began a multi-part series, a five-part series, on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, if you were not here last week uh, and, and have not heard it and not had opportunity, I want to really encourage you to go to the website and, and to listen to the sermon. Uh, I, I am about halfway through my third time to listen to the sermon. And uh, there, there's so much uh, foundational information there that, re, that you really need to understand uh, as a springboard to the, to, to the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, and, and so please do that. Um, but uh, for the sake of you who have not heard a last week's sermon, uh, before I begin on what I want to say this morning, I want to just take a couple of minutes, five or six minutes, and just kind of give you a, a very uh, high-level recap or a review of what um, uh, Pastor Mark said last week. And, uh, and uh, just to kind of set your expectations, just on this first part only, 
because I have so much to say this morning, I want to kind of squeeze it in. This first part, I'm just going to race through it at breakneck speed and just kind of hit the highlights, uh, just so you'll have enough of a foundation uh, for, for what I really want to say this morning. Um, so last week, Pastor Mark talked to us about uh, church history, uh, beginning at the inception of the church, um, on the day of Pentecost, uh, on up through uh, the early part of the 16th century, and, uh, and just a little bit uh, beyond. And uh, we learned that on the, on the day of Pentecost, uh, the 120 believers were together in one place uh, in obedience to the Lord Jesus. Uh, they were waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to be poured out as he said that he would. And uh, as they were together that day, God poured out his Holy Spirit onto them and empowered them uh, for the sole purpose of the proclamation of the gospel. And he empowered them, and, uh, and, and uh, the crowds came together uh, wondering what the commotion was all about. And as they rushed uh, to, to where the disciples were, uh, the scriptures say that uh, Peter, along with the other believers, uh, stood up, uh, empowered by the Spirit, and, and they preached the gospel to them, speaking of Jesus' life and uh, his uh, death and his resurrection and, and his ascension and about salvation that is available only in him. And the scriptures say that those who listened were cut to the heart. Just mark that in your mind. You're going to need that later. And they said, what should we do? And Peter, along with the other disciples, said, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this gift is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, as many as the Lord God would call to himself. And the scripture said that that day 3,000 souls were added to the church. And as the believers began to just kind of live their daily lives uh, and, and proclaim the gospel, the Lord was adding to their numbers every day those who were being saved. And some of the disciples became itinerant preachers and were moving about in the nation of Israel and, and into Samaria. And everywhere they went, they took the gospel. And the Lord was adding to their numbers daily those who were being saved. And then persecution arose with the death, the martyrdom of Stephen, and the believers were scattered about. And as Jesus himself said, when they persecute you in this city, go to that one. And wherever they went, they took the gospel. And as they proclaimed the gospel, the Lord was adding to their numbers daily those who were being saved. And then uh, the, the number one enemy of the church, Saul of Tarsus, who, who was hell-bent on the destruction of the church, as he was uh, heading to Damascus with uh, uh, arrest warrants for some of the Christians there, he was on his way. And God looked down and said, I'll take him. And he knocked him on his rear end and revealed his son, Jesus Christ, to him. And he was blinded for three days. And at the end of that three days, one of the believers came and prayed for him. And he received his sight. And the scriptures say that immediately he began proclaiming in the synagogues that Jesus was the Christ. And the number one enemy of the church became the number one advocate of the church. And, uh, and, and Paul and his companions uh, um, became itinerant preachers and they began, uh, uh, as God called Paul to the Gentile world, began to um, move about in Asia Minor and to, to move about in the Gentile world and take the gospel and preach the gospel. And everywhere they went, uh, men and women were saved and churches were founded. And, 
they made several trips through and they began to um, uh, install into the churches um, elders, uh, also known as, as overseers or as shepherds or as bishops, to, to, uh, to feed the flock and to, uh, to guard the church and to guard the gospel from heresies both without and within. And, and the church be, continued to be strengthened and, and to grow. And then as the uh, uh, original apostles and, and Paul himself and the others began to die off, uh, many of them martyred for their faith. And as time passed through the first century and the second century and the third century and into the fourth century, um, the church began to grow, uh, continued to grow. The gospel continued to spread, uh, much of it fueled by persecution. Uh, until in, in the early 4th century, um, where in the Roman Empire, uh, persecution was the official stance of the government. And then Constantine, uh, the, the emperor of Rome, had a spiritual experience himself. And then he immediately decreed an end to persecution of the church. And then shortly thereafter, his, one of his successors uh, took it even further and decreed that Christianity should be the official religion of the Roman Empire. And as Mark said last week, without the benefit of the internet or, or cell phones or, or airplanes or mass travel or any of the modern things that we uh, so take for granted, within uh, a little over 300 years, the gospel had conquered the Roman Empire. And the church was at peace and enjoyed her peace. But it was to be short-lived because, um, as Mark said, she became fat and lazy. And... Fewer and fewer people were speaking up against heresy, and fewer and fewer people were guarding against heresies coming into the church. And sadly, she began her decline into the dark ages. And, and over time, um, uh, bishops or overseers in various places began to confer upon themselves greater authority than they had the right to from Scripture, and began to re- uh, require greater allegiance to themselves than they had the right to by the Scriptures. And, and they began to amass power and, and they began to amass wealth. And the shepherds who should have been feeding the sheep began feeding themselves on the sheep. And uh, one particular bishop uh, in Rome um, decided one day um, that he was going to be the bishop of all bishops and that all other bishops should be under his authority. And so he declared himself the single leader of the Christian church and thus was born the Pope. And uh, the popes, uh, as, they, as they cycled through their lifetimes, continued to amass greater power and, and greater wealth for themselves. And, and, and the church began to organize poli- politically uh, from within. And um, uh, the pope began to put his thumb on the church. And um, furthermore, the, most of the believers uh, at this time, particularly the peasants and the poor, were illiterate, could not read. Uh, and even if they could, they couldn't read Latin which was the language of the elite, and the only um, version of the scriptures available was in Latin. And and the church continued to to oppress the believers, and and more and more heresies were being introduced into the church, and the truths of the gospel were either being ignored or discarded. These were the dark ages. But as Mark said, um, though the light of the gospel had been reduced to a flicker, it was not extinguished. Because it cannot be extinguished. But God was at work. In the heart of a young man by the name of Martin Luther, who was a a law student, and um, a promising one, and one day he was traveling through a thunderstorm, 
And a bolt of lightning struck so close to him that it knocked him to the ground and terrified him. And he cried out in terror to St. Anne as a good Catholic that she would save him. And he promised her that if, if he lived through it that he would uh, abandon um, his uh, legal studies and join a monastery. And a few weeks later he made good on that promise and he became uh, a monk. And he began to throw himself into all things Roman Catholic. And uh, as an educated man uh, who, who read Latin and, and who now had access to the Scriptures, he began to pour over the Scriptures. And as he began to do that, it wasn't long before he was a man in crisis. Because um, he began to see two things as he, as he read the Scriptures. First, the absolute holiness of God. He began to see... That God wasn't just good or great or awesome, but that God was absolutely holy. He was absolutely pure, absolutely devoid of all darkness and of all evil and of all uh, that is wrong. And in fact, uh, He was not just holy. He was holy, holy, holy. And Luther also began to see at the same time, that in the mirror of the Scripture, his own depravity. That he was a depraved man. That he was, in fact, the very antithesis of what God was. That he couldn't have been any further away from God or unlike God than he was. But he wanted to know God. And so he, looking at the Scriptures, uh, reached this place of crisis in his life. But he did not yet, from the Scriptures, at least yet, have the solution to his crisis. The only solution at his disposal were the teaching of the, uh, of the Roman Catholic Church, which was in self-righteousness. And so Luther began to throw himself into his own self-righteousness. And uh, he began to, uh, to do good works and to, to deprive himself uh, of, of basic necessities in life. And he began to beat his body. And uh, he began to um, uh, go to penance, not just a few times a week, but every single day. Sometimes for six hours at a time where he would go over the smallest minutia of his sins over the course of that six hours, confessing uh, his, his deeds, his thoughts, his motivations, until he finally wore his superiors out and he was told, just stop it. Don't come back to confession until you've committed murder or committed adultery or something else worth listening to. But you see, Luther was right. Six hours was not enough. He should have been in confessional 24-7. Because see, he came to realize from the Scriptures that it wasn't just the laundry list of his sins that was the issue. It was not just that, bad as it was, but that those sins were just the evidence that he himself was a sinner. He was not a sinner because of the sins he committed, but rather he sinned because he was a sinner. And his crisis deepened. But God. And, and, and as he had a particular affinity or a fixation, a fixation for the book of Romans, which I find to be very ironic, the book of Romans being part, him being a Roman Catholic. He read the epistle to the Romans. And in particularly in chapter 1, he, he one day came upon this verse. The righteous shall live by faith. You see, it is not by good works. It is not by penance. It is not by severe treatment of the body. The righteous shall live by faith. 
in the Son of, of God, Jesus Christ. As Steve Larson said, Luther came to realize that salvation is a gift for the guilty, not a reward for the righteous. And Luther was a man set free, but, but uh, not content to just uh, uh, take his ticket and go home. He, he wanted uh, the, the church to reclaim the gospel. He, he wanted the church uh, to repent of her sins and to, and to re- recapture the gospel and to been, begin proclaiming it again so that others would, would, would uh, come to salvation as he had. And uh, so he, uh, he penned the 95 Theses, a, a list of uh, points of discussion, of argument, of, of indictment against uh, what was wrong with the church. And he uh, nailed those theses uh, to the church doors in Wittenberg, hoping to spark a, a discussion, a, a debate, an argument with the church, hoping that uh, she would uh, reform and repent. But unfortunately... Um, the uh, debate he hoped that would happen never occurred because Rome did not take kindly to his challenge. And rather than a debate, he was brought up on trial. And uh, at the Diet of Worms, he was uh, brought in before the authorities. And he was asked, are these your writings? And he said, yes. And they said, recant. And so he asked for 24 hours. And, and, and he spent 24 hours in a vigil, which to me is just a kind of reminiscent of uh, what you read about Jesus, who spent all night in prayer before the next day, taking a cord, making a whip, and cleansing the temple. Luther spent 24 hours in prayer before the Lord just to make sure that his heart was right. And the next day, he returned to the tribunal. And before the authorities, he stood. And he said these now famous words, Unless I am convinced by proof from the Scriptures or by plain and clear reason, I cannot and will not recant. For to speak against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. And thus was born the Protestant Reformation. And if you'll permit me the liberty to indirectly apply a truth from Scripture from the book of James, where he says, Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the world had been set aflame, and the Reformation was set into motion. And beyond Luther... Uh, the truths of the Reformation were carried on into other parts of Europe and the remainder of the world by, by many men whose names you would recognize, such as John Calvin and, and John Knox and others. And, and as the, as the, the truths of the Reformation uh, began to, to uh, be formed, uh, they, they uh, coalesced around five central truths, five central doctrines, which we now know and call the five solas. The word sola, the Latin word means alone. And, and these five truths, these five doctrines are, are the essential non-negotiable truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ and therefore of Reformed theology. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. 
Solus Christus in Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. So this morning, we're going to look at the very first of these five solas, and that is um, sola scriptura, by scripture alone. And uh, I want to ask you now, before, before I actually begin in earnest, and I'm going to kind of dial it back now and slow things down so we can really kind of camp out and marinate on these truths this morning. I want to ask everybody to do something for me. Would you get the Bible the, the blue pew Bible or what you brought with you today. And if you're accustomed to using your screen, your phone or tablet, just set that aside and, and get a copy of the Bible. Now, this is not a gimmick. This is not, there, there's nothing mystical or magical about this, any of that stuff. But I just want to ask you for the remainder of our time this morning to just hold on to that. Just kind of a, as a tangible reminder of what it is that we're talking about this morning. And, and uh, just to kind of give you the syllabus of where we're going, um, I want to uh, break down this truth, sola uh, scripture, into five subcategories and talk about each one of them, uh, some more than others. I want to begin uh, this morning by talking about uh, the inspiration of the scriptures or, or the authorship of the scriptures. That is to say that God Almighty is the ultimate author of all of the scriptures. And then I want to talk about the inerrancy of the Scriptures. That is to say that the Scriptures are in fact entirely truthful, entirely reliable, and without error. And and then I want to talk about the clarity of the Scriptures. That is to say that every one of us as ordinary, everyday believers can understand what the Scriptures say because they are clear. And then number four, and this is the one where I kind of want to really camp out, I want to talk about the sufficiency of the Scriptures. That is, that God has revealed in His Word everything that we need to know from Him in order to know Him and to love Him and to obey Him. And then finally, I want to, uh, to, uh, to close by talking a little bit about Jesus' view of the Scriptures. So first, the inspiration of the Scriptures. God Himself is the author, ultimately, capital A, of all of the Scriptures. Um, David read for us 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I particularly like how the, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, translates this. They use a hyphenated word. They say, all Scripture is God-breathed. It is the very breath of God captured in written form. Um, God Himself set the precedent for His Word being in written form. If you remember in uh, Exodus uh, 31, after God had saved the children of Israel out of Egypt and had brought them to the base of Mount Sinai and massed them there, and He had called Moses up uh, onto the mountain. And Moses uh, spent 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain in the presence of God. And uh, the Scriptures say in verse uh, 18, And He, being God, gave to Moses when He had finished speaking with Him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, and here it is, written with the finger of God. 
God Himself sets the precedent after speaking verbally to Moses by taking two tablets of stone and with His own finger etches on those tablets the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, the, the, the terms of the covenant, and He gives them to Moses. God Himself provides His Word written with His own finger. 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul, as he uh, uh, wrote to the Corinthians, and looking back at the uh, time the Israelites uh, spent uh, in, in their 40 years of their, uh, their uh, unending cycle of disobedience and punishment and repentance and restoration, and then it all happens all over again. In 1 Corinthians 10, he writes to the Corinthian church and says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. He gives us His written Word so that we will know the mistakes that our predecessors made and not repeat them. The Scriptures get their true, authoritative, powerful character from God Himself. Inspired human writers wrote down exactly what He intended for them to write. By, by divine inspiration, and, and the mode of inspiration uh, still largely remains a mystery to us, exactly how He does that. Um, by and large, He did not just simply dictate to them and say, here, write this down. Well, sometimes He did. Sometimes He would speak to the prophets and say, deliver this message to the king or to the people. Or, you know, in the first part of Revelation where He uh, tells John, write these things down, write these letters to the churches. Sometimes He does that. But by and large, He doesn't just simply dictate what he wants written down. Nor does he reach down and grab the hand of the writers and do this and write his word. But rather, he works through each of their individual and unique uh, personalities and their experiences, and he moves upon them by his spirit to inspire them to author his word. And therefore, the scriptures are, in fact, at one and the same time, fully human and fully divine. Not at all unlike Jesus Christ Himself as as the perfect God-man who Himself is also fully human and fully divine. Born of a a human mother, but God was His Father. Uh, One man with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. Um, I heard someone say this one time. It was very helpful for me. Jesus was just as much man as if He was never God. And... He was just as much God as if He was never man. They are both true. And that mystery holds for the Scriptures. They are in fact both fully human and fully divine. The Scriptures are both the testimony of God's revelation and they are themselves revelation. They are the testimony of revelation and they are revelation. 2 Peter 1, verse 20, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by a human will. Here it is. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, because the Bible 
is God's words in human words. It can be trusted as the definitive source of revelation from the mouth of God. God is, capital A, the author of the whole of the Scriptures. Now I want to talk about the, uh, the inerrancy of the Scriptures. That is, the, the fact that they are, in fact, completely reliable and without error. And that's exactly what this doctrine means, that they are entirely truthful, entirely reliable, and that the Scriptures affirm all truth in the, in the original manuscripts. Let me say that again. The doctrine of inerrancy means that the Bible is entirely truthful, is entirely reliable in all that it affirms in the original manuscripts. Now let me just say here, kind of as a side note, uh, this is, and this kind of gets down in the weeds a little bit, but uh, some people have an issue, and, and unbelievers love to use this as a weapon against us as believers. Uh, some people uh, stumble over the fact, and this is no secret to anyone, no biblical scholars, uh, no pastors, uh, no theologians, we do not have in our possession any of the original manuscripts. None. You can't go to a museum anywhere in the world and see the, uh, the epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. It's not there. What we have in our possession are copies. And there is nothing wrong with that whatsoever. In fact, if you stumble over that, and also to give you a little bit of, of, uh, of strength when uh, unbelievers might bring this up, uh, let me just give you some scriptures that you need to grapple with uh, about the fact that we just have copies. Think about the Ten Commandments. Uh, earlier we talked about God giving to Moses the tablets written with his own finger. What happened to those tablets? Yeah. I mean, Moses comes down from the mountain, and what has happened? The people in, in a short 40 days have abandoned God, turned their, back on, turned their backs on him, and uh, uh, turned to idolatry. They conscripted his brother Aaron with little or no resistance to create an idol of gold that they declared to be their new God. And the Scriptures say that they uh, sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. And when Moses came down the mountain, he was furious, and he was grieving, and he took the tablets and he threw them down and smashed them to pieces. And God punished the people. And those who survived repented. And what did he do? He restored his covenant. And what did he say to Moses? Make for yourself two more tablets. And write on them the former words that were on the former tablets. And those are the tablets that were placed into the Ark of the Covenant. They were copies of the original. And just as authoritative and just as divine. Deuteronomy 17, And when he, a future king of Israel, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priest. Uh, in Jeremiah 36, uh, God had told Jeremiah to uh, write a scroll, an indictment against the king of Judah. And uh, Jeremiah did that, and it made its way up the food chain all the way to the king. And when it came into the presence of the king and it was read in his presence, what did he do? He burned it. In Jeremiah 36, 27, Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Barak wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, verse 28, and said, Take another scroll, write on it all the former words that were on the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. The fact that all we have are copies is no problem whatsoever. 
Another way to say that the Bible is inerrant is to say that it does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. The Bible does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact in any realm to which it speaks. In spiritual life, in history, in science, in nature, it does not affirm anything that is not true. Now because God is the author, and because He Himself is perfectly truthful, His Word therefore is completely truthful as well. Titus 1, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of the elect of God and of their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life. Here it is. Which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begin. And that passage of Scripture, I might just say in passing there, that in the original Greek is spine-tingling. Because what it says in the, original, in the original Greek is, in the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, promised before time began. Your salvation was promised before time began. You see, it would be contrary of God and His nature to affirm anything else but what is true. And because God is all-knowing, He's always truthful. He is always good. Because He is all-powerful, He is omnipotent. He always tells the truth. And because He is omnipotent, that is all-powerful, He is able both to communicate His Word and to preserve it. Not only did he see to it that it was recorded accurately and without error, he has seen to it that it has been preserved. And you can rest assured that what you hold in your hands today are in fact the words of the living God. Second Samuel 7.28 And now, O Lord, You are God, here it is, and Your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. In uh, October of 1978, a a conference was uh, convened in the city of Chicago. About 200 godly men uh, from uh, the the Reformed faith, uh, pastors, uh, theologians, biblical scholars... Uh, godly men, many of whose names you would recognize, uh, came together in Chicago because they, they felt a sense of urgency uh, because they were seeing that, that in Christendom, in, in the church, the doctrine of inerrancy was uh, slowly being abandoned and in some places completely abandoned. And, and so they, they felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to come together with one mind and over the course of a couple of intense days to draft and to sign and to publish a, a, a statement, a clear statement about where we stand uh, in the Reformed faith on the inerrancy of the Scriptures. And this document has, uh, uh, is known as the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. If you've never heard of it or if you've never read it, I I strongly encourage you to go look it up online. It's easy to find and read it. It's an easy read. It's less than three pages long. And and this document uh, is organized as as a preface 
and then 19 articles or, or 19 very short statements uh, of truth hitting 19 points about the inerrancy of the Scriptures. Furthermore, uh, each of the articles uh, is organized in powerful stanzas as, as pairs of affirmations and denials. And on each of these points, they say, we affirm this to be true. And just to make sure there's no understanding, misunderstanding, we deny this. And so this morning, uh, I want to read to you the first two sentences from the preface. And then I want to read you also the first two of the 19 uh, articles. And, and again, I want to encourage you on your own time to read the rest. From the preface, the authority of Scripture is a key issue in the Christian church in this and in every age. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are called to show the reality of their discipleship by humbly and faithfully obeying God's written word. To stray from Scripture in faith or in conduct is disloyalty to our Master. Recognition of the total truth and the trustworthiness of the Holy Scripture is essential to a full grasp and adequate adequate confession of its authority. Article 1. We affirm that the Holy Scriptures are to be received as the authoritative Word of God. We deny that the Scriptures receive their authority from the church or from tradition or from any other human source. Article 2. We affirm that the Scriptures are the supreme written norm by which God binds the conscience and that the authority of the church is subordinate to the authority of the Scriptures. We deny that church creeds or councils or declarations have greater authority than or equal authority to the authority of the Bible. The Scriptures are entirely reliable, entirely truthful, and without error. Now I want to talk a little bit about the clarity of the Scriptures. Theologians use a big word. It's the perspicuity. It doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? And whoever stuck that letter S in that awkward place needs some of their brownie points revoked. <laughs> Theologians speak of the perspicuity of the Scriptures or the clarity of the Scriptures. Uh, and what this uh, doctrine or this truth means that in general, with the illumination of the Spirit... The teachings of the Bible are clear to anyone who seeks understanding with the goal of knowing and obeying God. Let me say that in the reverse. If your goal is to know God and to obey Him, and if you seek understanding to that end, and if you ask for and surrender to the illumination of the Spirit, the teachings of the Bible will be clear to you. Deuteronomy 6, And these words that I command you today 
shall be on your heart. Parents, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk about them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. These Scriptures, the words of the Lord, are to be the last thing you think about when you go to bed at night. The first thing on your mind when you wake up in the morning. Uh, as you go about your, your daily life, you're to think about the truths of the Scriptures. As you get together with other believers, you're to talk about these things. They are to be on your heart and your mind, and they can be understood. Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Here it is, making wise the simple. Jesus' teachings were based squarely on the Old Testament Scriptures. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that at the end when I, when I summarize. But he assumed throughout his ministry that the Old Testament Scriptures were clear to the average person. Many times uh, when Jesus was uh, approached and was asked to, to, uh, to give a verdict on, on a particular issue or to answer a particular question or, or sometimes he was challenged uh, by the leaders of his day trying to entrap him. Many times, uh, the first four words out of his mouth were these. Have you not read? Matthew 12.3 At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck the uh, heads of grain and to eat them. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those with him and how he and his companions went into the tabernacle and they ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest? Matthew 19.4 And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason? And he answered them, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning created them male and female? And therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Matthew 21.42 He pushes it even further. And Jesus said to them, Have you not read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-one, speaking to the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead; he's the God of the living. Verse twenty-nine. Prior to that, he had said to them, and he was. Very blunt here. You are wrong because you do not know the Scriptures and you do not know the power of God. You know, I can't help but think. I don't know uh, about you, uh, but I've often thought to myself, man, I've got so many questions. When I get to heaven, I've got so many questions for God. And, And I can't help but wonder if Jesus Himself walked in the doors today, right here, down this aisle, and our jaws just all dropped, you know, and we 
just amazed he was here and we all rallied around him. We all wanted to ask him a question. And, and when it was your turn or my turn and we got up to him and we asked him our question, I, I can't help but wonder if the first four words out of his mouth would be, have you not read? Now, the fact that the Scriptures are clear doesn't mean that there aren't sometimes disagreements among believers about what a particular passage means. And uh told you, Dave, if Pastor Dave and I were to disagree on a passage of Scripture, if we were to sit down and talk about it and we can't agree on what it means, I do know this, and you back me up on this, we would agree on this. There is nothing wrong with this. If he and I disagree, at least one of us is wrong, and maybe both of us. But there is nothing wrong with the Scriptures. When there is a disagreement among believers, it is not due to the Scriptures. It is our problem. Misunderstandings can happen for many reasons. The foremost reason is because of sin. When we come to the Scriptures and they indict us, they challenge us, and we don't like it. And so we come to the Scriptures with sin, whether it be overt or it be hidden, whether it be conscious or non-conscious. And our own sin causes us to not be able to understand what it is being said in a certain passage. It could just be simple ignorance. You just might not simply know or know enough of, uh, of the Scriptures. You may just have a little piece and you may need a little bit bigger piece and just need to read more to be able to grasp what a certain passage is saying. It could just be faulty assumptions. You, you may just uh, uh, come to the Scriptures assuming things that are not true. Uh, and, and because of any of those things, you could, you could misunderstand but the Bible's emphasis is not on what is uh, not on difficulties, uh, but on what is clear. The Bible's emphasis is on the fact that ordinary believers can grasp the message of the Scriptures. Now, that's not to say that there, are, that there aren't some difficult passages. In Second Peter three, Peter writing, "Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these." Be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters, in which there are some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the Scriptures. Three things I want to point out in this passage. First of all, here the Apostle Peter affirms that the writings of the Apostle Paul are in fact inspired Scripture. He says at the close here, just as they do the other Scriptures, which confirms and elevates Paul's writings to the level of holy and inspired Scripture. Second of all, I want to point out that he says in here there are some things hard to understand. But those are the exception rather than the rule. And thirdly, those who are incapable of understanding these difficult things are ignorant and unstable. And this seems to imply a willful ignorance here. 
They don't want to know what it says. And they are unstable and they twist those hard things to their own destruction as they do the rest of the Scriptures. I heard someone say one time, this was very helpful for me, the deep things of God are nothing more than the simple things of God made more clear. And I also heard another pastor here in town one time a few years ago use this illustration, which I thought was just brilliant. I'll bet you that almost everybody in here has a nice flat panel TV. Uh, A nice uh, high quality. James says he has three. You've got this nice big screen TV which uh, um, uh, is in 4K and and, and you watch HD content on on that screen and you just can can, uh, just really appreciate the crispness and the clarity of what you watch on that screen. But I'll also bet you some of you have watched some content, some older content on those screens that was produced prior to the advent of HD. I'll bet you some of you have watched some older, you know, VHS tapes or, or some TV shows or movies or something that back in the day didn't have that quality. And I'm willing to bet that when you were done watching that, that you did not say, well, I have no idea what that was about. It wasn't in HD. All that fuzz, all that, all that, all, all that, that stuff that was out of focus. I have no clue what the plot was. I didn't get anything out of that. No, you got it, right? Yeah. So what? You read the Bible in VHS. <laughs> you you get it. The, the the basic message of the scriptures are clear to you. Now. If you're one of those guys like me who wants to be able to read in 4K, I've got great news for you. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers. There are folks here who read the Bible in 4K. Pastor Mark and Pastor Dave and others. And, and, and if you want, want to up your game and, and you, you run across a passage of Scripture that's difficult and you can't quite understand it, and go talk to one of these guys and hash it out. Mark and I had lunch last Wednesday and we did that. We talked about a particular theological issue and I was like, you know, what, what's your take on this? And here's the Scriptures that, uh, that I see that out. And, and quite frankly, we didn't completely nail it down. But, but we brought it into a little bit sharper focus. We as believers, and and I'm going to speed up uh, my talking here because I want to get all this in. We as believers have the right and the responsibility to read and interpret and understand the Bible for ourselves. This was the assumption of the Reformers who translated the Bible from Latin into the common language so that the common people would be able to read it for themselves. The Scriptures are clear. And now I want to talk about the sufficiency of the Scriptures. And this is really the heart of what I wanted to say to you today. The sufficiency of the Scriptures just simply means that they provide all the words of God that we need in order to know Him truly, know Him personally, and to obey Him. Everything we need for Him to tell us in order to live an abundant and godly life are right here. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, 
It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes the simple wise. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure. They enlighten the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 2 Timothy 3, in youth group, listen up. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. God has given His people a sufficient revelation of Himself so that they are able to know Him and to trust Him and to obey Him. The passage of Scripture that David read for us, 2 Timothy 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4.2 The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intents of the heart. I like to say the Word of God is alive and is sharp and is piercing and is at work. Now God has also commanded that nothing be added to or taken away from His Word. Nothing is to be added to or removed from the Bible. And what that means is that the Bible, at every point in its development, was at that moment exactly what God intended it to be. In its entire development in redemptive history, at every moment... It was exactly what God intended it to be. Deuteronomy uh, 4, verse 2, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God as I command you. Deuteronomy 12, 32, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Proverbs 35, 6, we read part of this earlier. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in Him. And verse 6, do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you, and you be found a liar. There's a powerful admonition at the the end of the the entire Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation, which applies not just to, to Revelation, but the whole of the Scriptures. Against tampering. With the scriptures. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are described in this book. And if anyone takes away from them, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. We as believers, should find freedom and encouragement in the knowledge that God has provided 
all of the absolutely authoritative instructions that we need in order to know Him and to live as He intends. God's people should never fear that He has withheld something that we need to know in order to love Him and obey Him. We also should never fear that He will ever have to supplement His Word by something new in the future to address some new situation or some new circumstance that comes up in some future age. The canon of the Scripture has been closed. There will be no new revelation. It's all right here. And any other book of any kind that claims to be authoritative with the Scripture is blasphemy. The Book of Mormon is not Holy Scripture. And to whatever extent it is searched to be so, it is blasphemy. The Apocrypha, which falls between the Old and the New Testaments in the Catholic Bible, to whatever extent it asserts or anyone else asserts it to be Holy Scripture, is blasphemy. Now, the New Testament does allow for the activity of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide individual believers in their lives on a daily basis. But the Holy Spirit, because He is the Spirit of truth, will never lead you in opposition to the Scriptures. Because He is the author of the Scriptures. He is the Spirit of truth. And any guidance He gives you will be 100% in line with the Scriptures. And if you think that you are being led by the Spirit in some direction that is in opposition to the Scriptures, bells should go off and red flags should go up and you should check it against the Scriptures. John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, Jesus speaking here, He will guide you to all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He will declare to you all things that are to come. We as believers should be satisfied with everything that the Scripture teaches. And we should be satisfied with everything that they leave unsaid. Deuteronomy 29.29 The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. How many of you believers here today want to see God glorified? Let me ask you again. How many of you really want to see God glorified in every way that He can be? Proverbs 25.2 It is the glory of God to conceal things. Want to change your answer? We should glorify God that He has revealed to us exactly what we need to know and nothing more. Acts 1 uh, when they had come together, uh, this is uh, before Jesus is going to ascend into heaven, his disciples uh, rallied around him and they said, is it now, now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what did he say to them? It is not for you to know. I would have been more blunt and said, none of your business. But he said, but you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the, to the ends of the earth. The Scriptures are sufficient. I want to close by talking about um, Jesus' view of the Scriptures. When he was tempted, he always responded, it is written. And he quoted the Scriptures. Even when Satan himself twisted the Scriptures and tried to weaponize them to use against Jesus, Jesus responded, on the other hand, it is written. He answered the twisted Scripture, the twist of Scripture, with Scripture. We said before, many times Jesus would say, have you not read? The most convincing reason to believe that the Bible is inspired, is inerrant, is clear, and is sufficient. The most compelling reason is because that is what Jesus believed. His teaching assumed that the entire Old Testament was the authoritative word of his Father. Matthew 5.17, Jesus Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's just a a Jewish euphemism, which means all of the Scriptures, the Old Testament. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. And I would add, He did not come to abolish them by fulfilling them. Your word, O Lord, is settled forever in heaven. Jesus, during His ministry, referred to dozens of Old Testament persons and and dozens of Old Testament events. And He always treated Old Testament history as being historically accurate and true. Jesus not only assumed that the creation account was true, but He also quoted the narrator as the authoritative words of His Father. And all of his teachings rested squarely on the Old Testament. Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 11, And you, Capernaum, one of the contemporary cities of his day, will you be exalted to heaven? you will be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, Capernaum, that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom than for you. Luke 4, But in truth I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah the prophet, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. Uh, and But Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to a woman who was a widow in the land of Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha the prophet, but none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus asserted all of this, this history to be true. His view of the Old Testament as the Word of God aligns perfectly with the way the Old Testament speaks of itself. And... Jesus saw his entire life 
as the fulfillment of Scripture. When he's about to be arrested in the garden, uh, and, and Peter pulls his sword out and tries to lop off the head of the, uh, the high priest as servant, and, and, and he gets his ear, and Jesus uh, heals him. And Jesus says to Peter, don't you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He would immediately give me twelve legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? We said earlier throughout His life He used Scripture to resist temptation. He used Scripture to settle disputes on divorce and what was the greatest commandment and, and, and eating with unwashed hands and, and countless other things. And... And I'm treading on sacred ground here. At the end of his life, he died quoting Scripture. He said those provocative words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, that wasn't the end. He was raised according to the Scriptures. And on the resurrection day, and on the, and on the road to Emmaus, uh, after he was uh, raised to life and was uh, walking down the road, uh, or met some of his disciples as they were walking, and uh, he, he uh, rebuked them for their hardness of heart and, the, and their, their slowness to believe. And the Scriptures say that he opened to them the Scriptures and, and showed them in the Scriptures all things about himself. Jesus, conscious of his identity as the Son of God, saw his teaching as no less divinely inspired than the Old Testament. And he taught with an authority that distinguished him from all others. Furthermore, he interpreted the law on his own authority. Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother or his sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or his sister will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be liable to hell. He described the Old Testament law and his teachings as having equal preeminence. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And then he gave his authority in the New Testament, uh, to the apostles as a witness uh, and uh, empowered them to impart His words in writing no less than verbally. 1 Corinthians 2, We've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things that are freely given us by God. And we impart these words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Jesus took the Scriptures to be the authoritative Word of God upon which He based His entire life. And those of us who follow Christ are called to treat all Scripture in exactly the same way. The Bible is a source of great delight and of great joy. It is a precious treasure. It is to be diligently sought. It deserves 
to be studied, to be meditated upon, to be ingested. My son, if you will receive my words, if you will treasure my commands within you, if you will make your ear attentive to wisdom, if you will incline your heart to understanding, if you will call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you will seek her like silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, you will do all those things. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge of God. I don't know about you, I can only speak for myself, but I just want to say publicly that I stand with Martin Luther and I say that unless I am convinced by proof from Scripture or by plain and clear reason and arguments, I cannot and will not recant. For to speak against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Sola Scriptura. Would you uh, stand with me, please? And uh, I want to pronounce uh, the benediction to you. If you'll put your hands out in a, in, a, in a receptive position, this is a symbol of receiving the blessings of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.